0: I don't even really want to describe what's about to come it's going to be an incredible audio experience um, but tell us a little bit about what you have for us today Brendan
1: right so there's this one artist that I felt very very infatuated with, in, in terms of his musical production. I felt like he was someone who was constantly changing up his sound and always innovating. As as I do with musicians that I feel very attached to, I decided to do a little bit more research into the story behind it and what the influences were, and um, stumbled upon a story that really goes so far beyond the bounds of the artist himself. His name is Jack Steadman. He was the front man of a band called Bombay Bicycle Club. Uh, British rock band. Ooh, um, How
0: Much Can You Swallow? I like oh, that how much, song.
1: How Much Sleep yeah. Can You Swallow? Yeah. How Much Can You Swallow? <laughs> 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 I, I've also seen that movie.
0: <laughs> I knew that I was missing a word in there, but I just didn't know it was like that key of a word. Yeah. Just to kind of like say what it is, Like it, we basically recorded a written essay that you had there's some like sprinkled audio all the way through some actual interviews with Jack Steadman himself I don't really know what I would call it um, but it's a really cool unique project that I think hopefully like Brendan can do more of and uh, yeah I really like the idea of the Jack Collective being a kind of platform for all sorts of um, creative things that any one of us or our friends do so I'm really excited about it anyways um, thank you for producing such a feat of audio drama brendan i think it's yes, fucking awesome yes b um, good job yeah so please go ahead and listen to it let us know what you
1: think send us an email yeah as a as a little aside this is i'm, I'm calling it the talk box but yeah the talk box is a guitar pedal where like you speak and it synchronizes it with like the guitar sound and i thought that mm. was just a kind of an apt way of describing it speaking with a voice speak, but also through music sit
0: stay yeah.
1: all of that hmm. So the talk box is hopefully going to be a recurring thing. I've got a couple of other projects I'm I'd like to explore with it.
0: I like it. Well, uh, let's get to it.
1: Hi, my name is Brendan, and this is the talk box presented by the Jack's way collective here. I explore the impacts of albums beyond the scope of music and how they reflect the core traits of humans and their history on today's episode. I'll be diving into an album with one foot in modernity and one in a pool of World War II's reverberations. This is a tale of how a political clash of cultures influences art, with consequences resulting in an echo impacting the artists of today. But before we get into that, I need to introduce you to the frontman of a British rock band that burst onto the scene in 2006, released a monumental album in 2009, released a slew of successful follow-ups, and then disbanded in 2016 or so we thought, as they now tease a comeback in 2019. This is the story of Mr. Jukes, or by his real name, Jack Stedman, the guitarist and vocalist of Bombay Bicycle Club. As individuals, we feel a constant sense of magnetism to some finality of our lifelong desires. It's a sensitive draw, usually without clear direction. This is the kind of dynamic that pulls artists towards experimentation, an exploration of new subjects foreign to their familiarities. The pull of these answers was a weight Jack Stedman couldn't shed. Despite having a strong sense of autonomy in the group he led, the curse of reputation made for stagnation, and the band felt rooted in the impressions left from their first album. I Had The Blues But I Shook Them Loose was a culmination of local influences on an impressionable Young stedman and Company. Their indie rock tone was anthemic, with the festival belters of Cancel On Me and What If contrasted by lay low lols such as Always Like This and The Giantess. Something about its identity felt definitively British. Its tones were warm, but trademarked by lyrics sewn with cynicism and self-doubt. Immediately, the reaction was positive as the band's debut album validated the anticipation formed from their win in the Road to V competition in 2006, earning them a spot in Virgin Mobile's V Festival. Albums are always something special, regardless of quality. They represent a culmination of creative intuitions being realized, sometimes in a mess, but occasionally in a polished state. Bombay Bicycle Club fell on the latter side, their refined rock already distinctive amongst a crowd of competitors yearning for the exact attention they achieved. All this forward momentum was pushing them towards Brit rock royalty, to be amongst names like Kaiser Chiefs, Elbow, and Oasis. Unexpectedly, they released a follow-up that took them far to the other extreme of the genre spectrum, with an all-acoustic, folk rock barrage in their album Flaws. They would return to electric on their follow-up, a different kind of fix, but something felt really different about their sound. Something about their maturation made for lush, lavish instrumentals, taken at a slower pace, allowing you to take in the details and admire the minutiae of the compositions. constant switching, the lack of consistency, this was a portrait of the artist's dilemma. Do you refine what you know, or do you take explored adventures into new territory, always varying the approach and influences for a brand new project every time? Again, Bombay Bicycle Club fell on the latter side, as is most evident in the Bollywood-inspired final release, So Long, See You Tomorrow.
0: I can feel it
1: now.
2: You're keeping to your own sound You're running out of sight When the light goes down Said you'll be waiting till the night's dark But there's no one
0: And the world went on, But I
1: always knew- From a voyage into India, Stedman came up with new musical impressions. Just as his surroundings grounded him in the English attitudes of style and sound, getting outside of those bounds enabled a personal, artistic growth, the exposure to fresh material driving him to new terrain with his playing. Strong moments bridged the Brit rock the band was known for with the lively percussion, rhythms, and sounds of a new region. It was, in a way, an indication of restlessness. An inclination towards storytelling pushed the album towards modern takes on foreign traditions to try to capture the essence of a country through the scope of a visitor, making the abnormal more palatable through an emulative production. This album felt like a near-total release of any consistencies committed to their sound. Even their previous work on a different kind of fix implanted familiar festival belters amidst its airy experimentation. Bombay Bicycle Club had always been known as a project of Jack Stedman, the man who had written rhythmic, rollicking rock since his teens. A change within the band had to be intrinsically tied to the shy, thin frontman, a slender personification of the foil to the grandiose creativity burgeoning within. In restlessness, he fed on international pleasures. In turn, he found himself in a new identity. Wrapped in a moniker, he flourished for you, um,
2: um, well, you decided to, well, to, I don't know if it's, is it, if my Basket Club, is it, is it really over now or is it just a hi- hiatus? It's just us trying to do something new. So it's a hiatus, I think, because there wasn't any bad blood. There wasn't um, any big arguments or anything. It's just, I, with anything in life, sometimes you want to see what's on the other side. When did you have this feeling that you actually wanted to see what's on the other side during Bobby Bicycle Club It was probably the last tour that we did when I finally thought this has to stop because I'd come off stage and I'd be listening to you know jazz and funk and soul and in sound checks I'd be playing those kind of bass lines and wanting someone to join in but it it, it was just you realized that there were two sides of you. The one was on stage playing this type of music, but the real personal one backstage was, had become something different. So...
0: You, you said
2: had become something different. Was there one specific moment you thought, well, now I am this person? I, I, I have become this person? Yeah. yeah, like I said, it was probably the last Bombay album, because... You can hear that I'm trying to put loads of samples on that record as well. You can hear me trying to steer it into this direction, but there's only so far you can do that without it becoming a bit of a mess. So I thought it was much more um, of a wise decision to to just put a full stop to it, rather than trying to blend everything and it becoming... I I didn't want it to become a
1: compromise. The process behind Mr. Jukes actually started in 2015, as Stedman recalled in a July 2017 article he penned for The Guardian, detailing pictures he had taken over the course of an artistic and literal journey. He writes, In early 2015, I decided to travel to North America, but traveling east and without flying. I'd been touring nonstop for the previous two years and wanted some time to myself. I'm a bit of a rail fan, and had always wanted to take the Trans-Siberian Railway. I like the feeling of idleness while still moving forward.
2: I just wanted to get away from everyone, because I'd been on tour for like two years, and you're in a very close environment with lots of people, and I'm quite an introverted person, so... I thought, where's, where's the most isolated place I can go to? And it was probably a ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Well, and what was it like? How, how did you get to this ship, what? So I took a train to Shanghai, which took a month, and then the ship went from Shanghai to America. And you just fill out some paperwork and give them some money. And what did you bring? I brought a studio in a little box. Um, I shipped it over from London to Shanghai, and I had all my computer and keyboards and all my equipment that I needed to write music so I just set up on the ship a little home studio. Did you also write on the train when you went to Shanghai? The train was just for like inspiration and I was listening to a lot of music and I think you have to have both they're equally important the writing and the inspiration.
1: It was on that cargo ship that the first song came to fruition titled Typhoon and opening up the album God First It's a spirited yet gloomy medley of sounds striking strings complement big bass rhythms with glockenspiel hits accented by vocals layered warped and manipulated into a choral state it's a swelling tidal track reminiscent of the rocking boat it was composed on while lyrically touching on the themes of threat the uncertainty that comes from such a long formless voyage marked by a departure a destination and an indeterminate path between them
2: What was the first song you wrote on that ship? It's called Typhoon. It's the first song of the album, and it's about... Some of the seas were really rough, so the ship was like swaying an incredible amount. All my equipment was moving across the table, and so I wrote that song. Was it hard? I mean, music-wise, but also for you being a person over there with all the... Oh, no, I loved it. I want to go back. I really miss it.
1: While this was the first song composed for the record, The trek that preceded it was lengthy and formative in its own right. It was a scenic route through the wintry grounds of Russia, a sea of shapeless white contrasted by the bright red outlines of the train cars one can find themselves nestled in for an effortless progress forth through the weather. From there, it was a gradual acclimation to more foreign scenery as Stedman progressed east. While in China, Stedman took a detour to Tokyo, where the bright lights and eclectic cultural practices provided a spark of energy, easing the troubadour into an impressionable state. To understand the next steps of progress in Mr. Juke's development, one must understand an element of the culture of music, more specifically the culture of sharing music. The accessibility has now brought on a brand new wave of sharing, trading, discussing, and discovering. It's a special time to celebrate what it means to be a music fan, to take explorative steps in new directions latching on to fresh releases or reveling in the hidden gems of the past. All of this comes from new technologies unique to our era but we always had these drives. The tools are all that differ. In a June 2017 noisy article written by Jamie Milton he describes his encounter with Stedman in his Hornsey home just north of London. He spends nights with one tab open to YouTube, the other on Discogs, to purchase anything new he discovers. The algorithm on YouTube is one of the greatest ever created, Stedman says. Nobody gets it more, and the comments are a great place to be. I'll save everything I find and then just buy the record. Once I've sat down, he rifles through his vinyl collection and plays a couple of records that inspired God first. There's an old Stravinsky piece, Donny Hathaway's The Ghetto, and a recording of Pastor T.L. Barrett and the Youth for Christ Choir dating back to the 70s. This process of discovery is something I'm sure we can all relate to. I know I've personally lost many hours late at night starting a new Spotify radio stream from a song that really connected only to repeat the process oft endlessly until I can hardly keep my eyes open anymore. But what of the era before this technology? The culture of music sharing as we know it is still so young. Even if you will look back to the time of mixtapes and manually splicing tracks together to share with friends or like-minded people. Jack Stedman discovered a minimalist take on the culture, a preservation of the past on the streets of modern Tokyo, identified by throbbing neon buzzing in a manner reflective of the pulse of the city, signaling entries to a shared space of audible art. of World War II that I find myself often neglecting when I think about it was how a clash of East versus West occurred between Japan and America. These were two nations at odds politically and culturally. Japan's practices were deeply rooted in a rich history, a tapestry of tra- traditions held up in spite of modernity to preserve an identity extending beyond the individual. America, rather juvenile relative to their Eastern counterparts in terms of age, was defined by its more liberal take on the arts. The expressive traits of its population was magnified in their art as genres like soul, blues, and jazz became the definitive soundtrack to the era. For American soldiers stationed in Japan, copies of these records were symbols of home, iconically captured impressions of the world they left behind, warming through the crackle of static, much like a sepia tinge. When the war ended, some of these people ended up integrating into Japan, As fostered resentment and conflict eroded and new relationships blossomed, some of these records the soldiers brought over found themselves winning over inquisitive minds. A population defined by tradition in form, function, and expression was being challenged by genres that could be best defined by their defiance of structures. In particular, a new world was being encaptured and enamored with a style of music that would veer in unexpected directions, shedding the predictability that comes with the preservation of traditions. That genre was jazz. This is a genre that due to its American associations was so provocative and controversial, it was even banned by the government at one point as being music of the enemy. As the influence of this new music spread, a closer integration of global populations also started to develop in the absence of animosity. The ability to purchase releases from across the Pacific Ocean was open, however it was only for the affluent as the costs were so high. Such scarcity could have turned jazz records into exclusive commodities, ones with high trade values being passed around as an asset as much as art. Gradually. Spaces housing records to be listened to in a public setting called jazz kisses or jazz cafes. A new culture of sharing and influence burgeoned where previously people were deprived. A night can now be spent sitting in the same place for hours on end, solitary in a room of strangers, listening to the newest release wash over a room with a palpable weight of significance, while enjoying a beverage, satiating whichever vice tempts your palate. The same way we connect over sending a song was the energy flowing through groups of individuals united in a celebration of creation and art. This culture and the significance of music pushed the project Stedman was conceiving, now intended to be an observance of what made music unique as a product of expression, unifying separate entities through common appreciation and reverence. To experience one of these jazz cafes is to experience an element of our past perfectly preserved. The decor was probably purchased the same time as that old, dusty first pressing of The Saint and the Sinner Lady by Charles Mingus, and the menu is the same basic selection of tea, coffee, and maybe a beer if that's your poison. Let's be honest, you aren't going to one of these places for the dining experience much like you wouldn't go to a baseball game just to have a hot dog. It's a place of rest and contemplation that paradoxically exists in a climate of hustle, rush, and productivity. Even more peculiar is the way that it bridges the familiar with the foreign. In my research for this podcast, I looked at various jazz cafes across Japan, and each one painted the same picture. The anomalous groups were the social ones. These are the locales of people wanting to stop and appreciate the music that we pass off as easily accessible pleasures. There's a bizarre dissonance in reading up on these places as they treat a foreign art with more consideration than the people belonging to the nation that created it. It speaks largely to the community of music, how it was closer-knit and caring towards the medium due to its scarcity. The sense of community surrounding Japanese jazz culture swayed Stedman towards new ideas, but each concept would have felt incomplete if it didn't come back to the sense of togetherness he found himself spending countless evenings in. Whether it was sitting alone or talking amongst the people, the music provoked a unity and bond that earned appreciation both from and between the individuals staying in the space. God first takes that feeling and expresses it with fresh takes on the tropes of the past, reimagining classics with contortion and additions. Implanting various samples he discovered through his journeys, there's a lavish love letter left lingering underneath lush brass and bountiful bodacious vocals. It's hard to ignore the smooth, luxurious bass rhythmically carrying the song Angels Slash Your Love beneath chopped up brass samples looped and shaped into new life. The song carries an aura of neoclassicalism with regards to the song Stedman fell in love with abroad, a rewiring of established elements. The masterful production puts punchy hooks at the tail end of the tune with BJ the Chicago Kid taking center stage, instantly imprinting a new identity on the track, and it's one that isn't Stedman's. It makes no sense Traveling a distance To get so far something's been missing This isn't the only time on the album he takes a backseat to a dominant personality On Grant Green, aptly named after a Grant Green track was discovered at a jazz kissa and sampled, Charles Bradley's wails provide the exclamation point to the rhythm, demanding attention to the simplicity with respect to the original recording. The openness and accepting of such larger-than-life personalities is a main component of why God first blossoms in the warmth of collaboration, a collaboration defined by a sense of community. Indeed, each feature on the album is one cut from the same cloth of respect running through the jazz cafes as many of them came from no formal relationship before them they were simply about the music. In a bizarre sense of self-referentiality the lifeblood of Mr. Juke's music is music itself. One listen of From Golden Stars Come Silver Dew" shows how a classic track can be treated with emphasis and love to create something new and beautiful. Instantly hooks get caught in your head The guitar loop will rhythmically bounce between ears to facilitate an endless head bob and sway while choral voices ease you into an uninhibited lull. Beyond that, the phantom nostalgia washes over you as the antiquated feels homey, drawing from an experience never had yet implanted in your head as a feeling. As with all music, there is a love towards the tracks, but this feels more palpable and sincere than what's come before it because of the connection to the song sampled. Stedman finds himself within a discourse of two hypothetical artistic bodies of reference and reimagination, making each track unique yet familiar in its own regard. Additionally, the imaginative manipulation of vocals laid by any of the features or Stedman himself crafts a three-dimensional space for him to craft a cozy nook, welcome you to stay for a while and experience strong evocations. Simply get lost in magic, as you'll find vocals coming from every which direction, building an atmosphere that feels spacious and whole. It's a rare track on God First as it's more sparse, yet it reflects the isolation one can find oneself in, and asks you to be both introspective and comfortable within it, much like a sense of community. Sometimes, I can't help but find myself appreciating the connective tissues of causality when looking at my life. I try to take that same appreciation with music, because a lot of what exists out there today has some kind of story, and sometimes that story illuminates how a seemingly unconnected event became a formative occurrence in the creation of something special. I'll fully admit I was not in love with God First on First Listen. I'd say I could best describe the feeling coming in the rest after the last track finished as curiosity. How did the artist I know all of a sudden find himself in a celebration of North American sound? But in the constant recursion of whys and explanations, the story began to shape my appreciation of the album. World War II is a tragedy that mars human history. When we learn about it, We learn about it for the insatiable desire of conquest, as it drives mankind to savagery, violence, and atrocity. Yet sometimes even the harshest injuries can result in a beautiful development as an act of healing. A bridging of cultures spread the musical practices of North America to a country that would come to adapt its formlessness and lack of structure. Not only is it the perpetuation of these practices that's special, But it's the respect of these people for the art that I find personally inspiring, something that shows an admiration between societies in a way that bridges the divide, further reducing the differences that we can define ourselves by. How is it possible that a conflict of starkly contrasting societies created a congruence between these two groups in a way that facilitated a back-and-forth dynamic of influence? Somehow, the ripples of this event influenced a British musician on a voyage of self-discovery and creation, resulting in an album which is a cultural lens upon another cultural lens on a genre. This album is a preservation of the story that preceded it, and I can't help but share it with, well, anybody, because it is so much bigger than the sum of its individual parts. It would be impossible to break down each element and how it plays into the concept of God first, but I can ask you to take the time and explore one of my favorite albums of recent memory. It may not be impeccable, but it perfectly accomplishes its goal of adding to the discussion and celebrating that which precedes it. In the opening track, Stedman talks of a boat capsizing in a storm. The final reprising lines discuss the end by stating, no more sweat, no more blood, only God, only God. It's a reprieve from the opening building chaos, but also feels like a testament to the culture of music. In moments of togetherness, we are not the blood, and we are not the body. What we are, are the connections of similarity and bonding. It's a palpable energy, implicit and hidden in open space, bridging strangers much like a god. In the Jazz Kisses, Stedman was not the artist, nor his creations. He was an individual that bore internal similarities to foreign strangers, all reveling in the majesty of music. God First is more than a compilation of creations. It's an honoring of these connections. It will help you discover new artists and tracks you love, opening a discussion with the listener. So please, take time to indulge in these songs and try to find the willingness to relate through music, whether it be through sharing, celebrating, We're using it as a setting for the next conversation between familiar friends or similar strangers. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of The Talk Box. In addition to God First, I highly recommend checking out some Japanese jazz albums or even other takes on mostly Americanized genres. Maybe you'll find something in Ryo Fuki's scenery that feels foreign yet familiar as he waltzes across the keys in such casual style. Or perhaps you'll catch something in a flippers guitar track that sounds like the 80s pop rock with an almost mathematical twist. Did this discussion inspire you to take a deep dive into new music or revisit some old favorites? Do you have a favorite cultural rendition of a different sound? Let me know through an email to jackswaycollective at gmail.com and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more content in the talk box to see what comes next. Until next time.
0: By the time, through the fates that hide inside, by the deep, by the dark.